Thanks for choosing this podcast from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. This podcast is from March 29, 2020, which you may recognize as a date in the midst of the COVID crisis. That's not the main topic of the service, but we do pray actively for our nation, uh, for our endangered, if you will, and though we are not right in our midst uh, facing the challenge of anyone with COVID, we all know that that could come. And so we want to honor God with all that we are while we have the opportunity to do so. If you would like to connect with New Heights, please go to churchtoledo.com and um, enjoy, listen, grow, and reach New Heights in Jesus today. Oh, and there will be a little bit at the very end after the invitation that you won't want to miss. This is the entire service from beginning to end. Don't miss that teaching that takes place after the final song. God bless you. virus. We will give God all the glory. Uh, we will continue to enact the safety measures that we have in place and so on. We will praise the Lord. We'll pray together. We're going to pray in just a moment. When I pray and open our worship today, we'll go largely just two things. One, we're going to pray for all those folks. We, no one here, to my knowledge, has an immediate relative that has been touched by COVID and we're grateful for that. Um, and we don't know if that time will come or not. Obviously, that's in the hands of the Lord. Who knows what's going to happen? But thousands of families all across the United States and tens of thousands of families all across the world 
have uh, lost people uh, either permanently or for a long stretch of time from their families. And so there's a great deal of sorrow in the world. Yes, sir. Actually, do have an immediate relative. You have that, one? That may have. We don't know. Okay. She's a nurse. She's been helping out, and they sent her home with a high fever. And they don't, you know, precautions there. Right. They found uh, that was about almost a week ago. And my, and my dad is about to either do a stent or a triple bypass surgery. That could really affect him. Right. The diabetes he has. Um, dad does do what he does. And, you know, I believe the guy he's supposed to speak to with. He does what he wants to do, self like okay. No one can talk to him. We, we talk to him, he just has it here. But, okay, so my dad and uh, it's my, uh, my one of my cousins. And what's your cousin's first name? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Sharon. Sharon, yeah. okay, so prayer for Sharon. And your dad's first name? Dad's Bill. Bill, okay. So that's the closest we know. I have a second cousin that I have not seen in, since Same before one. she was born. Um, like ever, I've never met her. But uh, she has, um, she was diagnosed, tested and diagnosed, and then um, her husband also, he was in the hospital before she was. And so they live in Toledo, across town. Um, I've never met either one of them, um, but I've met my uncle, which, is, or which actually is my first cousin. I always say he's my uncle because he's older than me, but not actually my first cousin. I met him a few years back, and then I hadn't seen him since I was a kid. And, um, and it's his daughter and his son-in-law, and they've been, they have it. So that's a, you know, obviously your dad's going into a risky situation. We have a number of members of our congregation who have de de decreased immune systems or who are older like that. And so they are in genuine risk. I mean, they're at much more risk than uh, anyone else, for example, which is why they're not here, but they're joining us on Facebook Live, praise the Lord. And, and so I said two things. First thing, we are obviously gonna pray um, for these we know who have been touched and in a very powerful way, in a very sad way, in most cases, by the COVID virus uh, disease, really is what it is. The virus is Corona and the disease is COVID. Um, but, uh, on top of that, we also need to pray um, that God would blend together our worship, those of us who are here worshiping today and also those who are worshiping with us through Facebook Live um, right now and to come on the podcast later and so on. And so that as a church, we can still be united. Now, we can't all be together in one place. We can all be united in the Lord. And um, and we intend to continue as long as we are able to do. I feel like I'm on the world of the world when I say that. We're going to continue the broadcast as long as we can. You know, that was the world of the world. But we're going to continue to do that as long as we can. And, um, and I think we'll be able to do it straight through because God's going to take care of it. We're trusting in the Lord. All right? So we'll pray for those two things, and then we'll jump back into worship. Father in heaven, I do praise you and thank you, um, Lord, because you are still good. You are still awesome. You still take care of everything. You're still on the throne. You still provide salvation. You still reach into lives. You still walk with people. You still exist in hearts. You are an awesome God for all those reasons and more than we can list. Lord, we confess to you our need for understanding because we see that there are thousands and thousands of people whose lives have been forever changed by this experience. And the truth is our country has been changed and transformed. Who knows what happens in the economy? Who knows what happens on the job front, the job scene? And even there are thousands of people who have passed away, thousands of people whose health has been greatly affected. And so they're not working. They're not able to work. They're not going to be in the workforce. So their businesses may have closed or... Who knows what's going to happen in our economy? We know that the government is taking steps, and first responders and nurses and doctors all over are working their butts off to try to make this, to mitigate this, to keep it as minimum as possible. So we're asking, Lord, that you would bless those who are suffering, bless those who are different, these names that have been called, Lord, especially Sharon, who may or may not have um, COVID. Lord, we just ask you to bless her and strengthen her 
And uh, we pray, even Lord, that if she does have it, you'll heal her and that she'll be able to get back to work because the calling that she has on her life, being a nurse, is powerful. She can, she can limit the suffering of a lot of folks. And so we just pray, Lord, that you'll protect her, that she doesn't have it. If she does have it, that it'll be gone fast and that she'll have the antibodies and that she can work. Uh, knowing that she had it, she could work feeling safe from that disease. And Lord, um, there's a lot of fear and anxiety, doubt and depression, uh, desperation, groping, searching. I wish it was hoping. I'm not sure if that's what I see. Um, Lord, but we're hoping in you. And they, they, they got this projection like it's going to go up and it's going to get busy and there's going to be a lot more cases and it's going to finally start to taper off. And Lord, uh, that's what... Uh, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but that's what I don't want to see. I want to see a miraculous intervention of our God that one day it just stops. It doesn't keep going up. It doesn't plateau off. It doesn't slowly taper away. But, Lord, that you do a miracle in response to the prayers of your people. We know that people all over the U.S. and all over the world, churches even today, uh, even as the vast majority of them are not having a public worship service, they're meeting over Facebook and things like that. We're praying to you, God, and we know you can do. We know you have done. You've done it in the past. Lord, as we worship you today, we pray that you genuinely blend us together as a body. We are hurting for the absence of our members who cannot be here because they are higher at risk or because they don't feel safe or we don't feel it's the right thing to do, uh, Lord, under these circumstances. And we just uh, genuinely want to be one. We want to be united, the body of Christ, under the head that's Christ, fully submitted to you, reaching new heights in Jesus. And so we pray that you'll do that. And if we should forget to mention at the time the offering comes, for those who are giving online, giving electronically, giving through their cell phone, sending their checks in, whatever, Lord, the monies that you have given us, we intend to get back into your service. And the same with our gifts, the same with our talents, our abilities, even with our hearts, Lord. Like the little boy who put himself in the offering plate when he had no money. That's what we want to be today. But we are offering ourselves up to you to use us as you see fit. Let us begin... Again, I knew we've already started, but let's begin again now to worship you in earnest. And while we're missing a few voices here, I pray that those who are joining us from home will sing. And that all the voices that are singing will come together in your ear and you will be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. So, we're going to stand for the next two songs. I'm standing anyway. But you all... Please join us, those of us that are standing. Unless you're playing drums. <laughs> you can't stand playing drums.
courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts and thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts and chapter 1 says that God has been testifying since the beginning of creation to his incredible nature. So, you probably heard him this week. What did you hear? Okay. Um, me and my mom were talking on the phone a little while, like a couple weeks or so ago. And I was telling her, we got on the conversation about church and God, and we do that sometimes. But this time, I found out something that is a... I guess you can say a misbelief that some people have uh -huh. about tithing. Uh -huh. And me and my mom were talking, and she says that she don't feel it's right to pay to go to church mm. because she thinks that that's what tithing is about. And I had to explain to her, I was like, that's not what it's about. I was like, it's about giving back. I was like, God blesses you with a job, therefore you should help give back. I was like, because God can very easily take that job to go away. I was like, so for one, you should be grateful for the job you have and the money you have. And for two, God tells us that we should give and we should serve. And I was like, that's why I do it because I found out before I became a Christian, before I started actually coming for the right reasons, I had told my mom at one point that exact thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't think you had to pay to go to church. I didn't think it was right that churches asked for money all the time because... I just didn't think it was right until I actually understood why. Mm -hmm. So when when people get on the topic of giving money to the church, it's not paying to go to church. It's not giving money to the church to help them pay bills. I mean, it is, but it isn't. But it's the money you give is God's money anyways because he gives you that job. He gives you the ability to make that money. So in all rights, we should give back what is rightfully his. Mm -hmm. And... And if you're not working, if you don't have a job, God gives you your days. Therefore, you should give and serve those days for Him because He gives it to you. It is a gift. He does not have to grant you with life the next day. And they got me, that just got me thinking about it. It's like, you know, the things that we complain about, the things that we do, you know, God can very easily just snap His fingers and take everything away. I was like, so we should be grateful for what we have, even if what we have is a very little bit. Everything we have, we should be grateful for. And my wife knows this. That's something I struggle with a lot, is being grateful for the little things that we have. And I complain all the time about stuff that I shouldn't complain about because I have a roof over my head. I have a good job. My kids are healthy. My health, my family's healthy. I was like, 
so I shouldn't complain about stuff like that because God gives it to you. And why on earth would you want to complain about something God gives you? It just it just doesn't make any sense. I just want to share some verses and a quote that I've had saved in my phone for probably 15 years um, okay. that I read the other day. Um, these are my four favorite verses, I guess, um, that I saved way back when I was still in the youth group. Um, and I was reading them the other day, and I read them in a certain order, which is not the order that they're saved in my phone, which kind of clicked something. And then there's a quote from Dr. Seuss that goes right along with it, which is weird. So the first verse is John 14, 6. And this is the New Living Translation, Translation, so it's a little bit different. It says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And the difference in that verse is can come. Um, most versions say no one comes to the Father. That word can really makes a difference because it makes you think, Not able. yeah, they literally can't unless they come through Christ, which is different than some versions. Um, the next one is 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun, um, which is what happens when we give our life to Christ. Um, the next one is Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And the last one, which this verse is funny to me the way it came up. My mom will remember, but... Galatians 1.10, which says, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Um, which, especially in this time, is a pretty big deal. Because there's some anger going around. People are getting angry at other people for the things that they're doing. Um, and we need to remember why we're here and why we're doing what we do. Um, we are Christ's servant, and that is the reason that we're here. The Dr. Seuss quote says, Today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. Which is true if you are Christ's servant and that is who you are. Amen. Amen. That's a good word. Very neat. God is good to witness to us in these times. Brother Tony Tate? I've got three things I think. First one was, and I just thought I would share, like I didn't have an inspirational, but like when I was listening to the radio today, that's where the inspiration came. So sometimes the guy just puts it on your heart and on the fly. And so, and um, one thing I was remembering, I just kind of remembered things like back in the day. Um, um, my beloved brother, Tom Ward, uh, he's a other brother that I, I go to, encourages me. Um, I was going through a lot of marriage difficulties. And, and um, he was always so nice to me. He always got straight to the point. He never, like, you know, it, it, he could be spiritual. He doesn't, you know, he just keeps it in a practical sense, and I said, well, you know, it's like, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and, it, and he just said, it sounds like you just want to do what you want, and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is, I just want to do what I want, and I think every one of us has a struggle of just doing whatever we want, you know, I, I think, you know, just like a lot of people, even with the social distancing, they lost, uh, you know, contacts, phones, or whatever, you know, or can't go anywhere, and just look at the impatience and the ungratefulness, which everybody has, but I just, I, you know, I see my kids and I, I take their tablet, you know, or something, and I just wondered, like, if I lost something, what would I do? I'd just be irking, just, I need this, i got to have this, i got to have that, you know, and so um, I was just, like, you know, just always reminding ourselves, and this is what they encouraged me, is that I was just thinking about social distancing, and I was just like, you know what, the cool thing is, is that God's not social distancing anybody today, you know, whether it's sin or not, but... 
God is completely here. He's not looking for social distance. We could go to God truly freely to Him, and He could freely come to us. And I just think that's just so awesome. And, and Jesus is the only one to really experience social distance from the Father one time. They, they'll never have to be distant again. God is not distanced in any of this that we have. We may go distant to Him, but He is completely here with us. And um, the third thing was, I was just remembering this uh, DVD, I don't know if I've seen it, but it's Max Lucado's Jesus movie. I thought it was really cool when you get to just watch a kid's perspective, but it's where Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, we all know this thing, that the guards go to ask him, who are you? And he says, you know, he says, I am. You know, they Jesus to Nazareth, they ask, he says, I am. And they say, I am, they fall backwards, because like, he's literally showing himself. You know, or get, they're actually seeing who he is. And then they say, and they ask again, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. They fall back again. And then, you know, I thought he was revealing himself to these, these guys that were messing with him. But when you when you read the next thing in the verse, and you see it in, in the cartoon, in the movie, he points to the disciples and says, now leave them alone. And I think that's so cool is that, you know, when God reveals himself to us or reveals himself to others, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's not like he's trying to show off his power or show off himself. He don't need to show himself off. He is God. But he does it in an intention for us. It literally is like pushing that away and saying, you know what, don't touch them. You know who you're dealing with. I mean, everything that, you know, we're going through, our struggles, God is trying to get our attention. And, and, and really, all it ever is is God wants his best. He wants... He wants to see the best out of us, just like our kids. I don't think anybody here wants to watch. All my kids do whatever wants, says what he wants. We want our best out of it. And so God does everything he does for our best. I mean, it's so hard because in this in this minute, second, not knowing what's going on, trying to figure it out. But it, it, for God, he's doing it for our best. So when I look at God and I see all this stuff going on, where I'm doing it right, you're doing it right, I'm like, God, this is for my best. You're doing this because you're loving me. You're doing this because you want to show your power. You're doing this so I would know how powerful. You're doing this so that you would show me the fighter that I am. You're doing these things in my life. So, you know, and I'll close this. This is what I thought was really cool. God just keeps saying you're stuck in a chapter one in, in, in the New Testament. Every chapter one is about empowerment. God is awesome grace. And then you're stuck there. But then through that, we can, we, the next chapter is about discerning reaching out to the body, serving others. Are you just stuck in a place where you just got to be where, God, I need your power, I need your love, and just be there? Or are we actually going to go out because of that? Or are we going to, like, grow because of that? And so, you know, I'm asking you, you know, what chapter are you in? Uh, you know, I'm asking God to help me pray for you, but to get out of chapter one and, right. like, get into the next chapter. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and pray. Oh, brother Mike. All this stuff going on around here lately, uh, I've been about the message you brought last week, I've been thinking about a lot. Mainly, one part that stuck to me the most is when he was in the garden praying, came back three times. Third time he came back, they were still sleeping. And on the third time, the guards came, go to arrest him, weapons were drawn, blood was spilled. But next uh, time he said, do you not think I can call down a dozen of angels? Do you not think I can do that? Before I he said, Lord, God, take this from me, but ultimately your will be done in my mind. And with all this stuff going on, I've been thinking a lot this week. I've been praying a lot this week. I've talked to Jamie, talked to my dad, talked to Carrie. I'm considered high risk because of diabetes. 
And I know they were talking about that. One thing, three problems, we can't live in fear. We can't. And knowing that, God has got, no matter what happens, good, bad, ugly, God's got you. No matter what. And uh, another thing uh, we talked about, I hit on this Tuesday, about churches closing, people not wanting to do. But, while people forgive you, watching out for yourself, taking precautions, but Jesus on that cross, he didn't quit. That's right. Therefore, I'm not going to quit. Long as his heart beats, long as I can go, I'm not going to quit. No virus, no nothing. Ain't going to stop me. And I encourage you not to stop none of you. Whatever it is, what I'm supposed to do here, I'm going to continue to do so until his heart don't beat no more. Think on that, and I encourage you Okay, so we're going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to close this window up here because it's getting real windy outside. There we go. Sorry, I like the breeze too, but it's getting pretty crazy out there. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and pray, and we'll jump back into just a couple songs of worship, and we're headed to the Word. Um, and then reminder that at this time we are blessing not only uh, our tithes and offerings that we're giving to the offering plate today, but that those also are given by other means. And, um, and even if you're out there and you've lost your job, and you've not, you know, and I don't think we have anybody here like that, but if, we, if there's somebody out there who's lost their job and they're not making any money whatsoever right now, um, you know, it's really about your heart condition. And so if you're making no money, you tithe it automatically. And you need to give God the glory for that, um, because 10% of nothing is zero. So you're still doing it, and we're grateful for that opportunity to do that. Are you? Yeah, and so we will pray for those who are right now at the risk of, of not being employed as we pray a blessing upon the money that God has given us. God in heaven, thank you again for your many blessings. Um, as RJ said, as Mike said, and even, uh, Lord, it was in everything we just talked about, Brother Tony and, and Alicia. Uh, you really are the one who's in control. You own it all, um, and we could have everything or nothing. And the truth is, just because we're here, we have everything. We're so blessed to receive another day, uh, our health, our strength, our money, our jobs. Uh, we do need, Lord, you to preserve us and sustain us, we pray, and give us this day our daily bread. We do that regularly, I hope, and uh, Lord, we know that you sustain us. You are the provider. But we also need your forgiveness, because we've screwed up time and time again. And um, so we ask you, Lord, to forgive us, and we're grateful that you do so through Jesus, your Son. You're not only faithful just to forgive us, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to give us another shot, another go, a fresh birth, a fresh chance. Lord, and that's what we really want, that's what we really desire, is an opportunity to serve you. We pray for every person whose heart is turned in your direction today. There are a lot of folks whose churches uh, were not able to worship, they couldn't get online and see a streaming video or anything. They just... They're left to you, and I pray that you will take care of them right where they are, that you will minister in their heart and cleanse their mind and put the words of, of your kingdom in their ears and that they could respond accordingly. Father, as we sing the last couple songs and as we go to the lesson and we go to the sermons, we go into the word, we pray that you are completely under control. Bless these tithes and offerings and all that's given in all ways that it's given, but especially, Lord, be in control of all the variables many of whom we don't know anything about. We don't know what's going on. We can't control it. I think it's funny that in America we've always thought that we'll never be invaded. We'll never be invaded by another country, at least not with not any great success, because 
well, there's a lot of armed Americans because there's a lot of diligent Americans because there's the National Guard in every single state and actively employed servicemen and we've got radar posts and we've got satellites and, and the, the list just goes on what defends our borders. But now we have been invaded by a real enemy that is this virus and there was none of those things that could stop it and yet here it comes. And so, Lord, we know uh, that we need to trust every single moment of every single day to you and that we need to not quit. Whatever that looks like for each one of us, every person needs to be coming to you, not to me, not to what the church thinks or what any one of us thinks, but um, to you and saying, what does it look like for me to not quit, to continue to serve right up until the last possible moment? How do I do that with the greatest wisdom, with the greatest strength? And we're going to get all that from you. We're trusting you for it. Bless these tithes and offerings and your your workers and your servants and your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we're not passing the offering place. Just, just like we did last week. If you have an offering, just go forward and put it in the plate. The governor will be happy if you don't pass the offering place. <laughs>
Above all things, 
that struggling just to hang on. They've lost all they faith in love. And they've done all they can to make it right again. Still, it's not enough. For the ones who can't break the addiction and chains, you try to give up. Come back again, just remember that you're not alone in your shame and your suffering. There is hope for the helpless, rest for the weary, and love for the broken heart. There is grace and forgiveness, mercy and As I was preparing this message, a strange episode of my life popped into my head, something that I had totally forgotten right up until then, and I remembered it in great detail. And I asked the Lord, so how does that speak to this topic? And he showed me a pretty intense vision in my mind of what had happened that day. And so I realized that God was trying to show me something out of that that speaks to this particular text. So I'm going to tell you that story briefly. We have two things. One, I want to tell you that story. And then the second thing is more, kind of just like a little brief history lesson so we understand how this all went down as it gets close to the crucifixion because we're getting into those days. So the first thing is that story. 
I was about seven years old, something like that, and my brother and I pretty much had the run of the neighborhood. He was four and a half years older than I was, and we went pretty much anywhere. And uh, there come a particular Saturday where there was a flea market at the Great Eastern Shopping Center, which is the shopping center sort of like behind my house. I think, I think it's behind my house. They think my house is behind the shopping center, but it's just a point of view thing. Um, but anyway, so I'm pretty sure the shopping center is behind my house. Anyway, so we walked over to the shopping center, and they were having a flea market there. You could buy all kinds of stuff. And, and I, I've always been kind of a, uh, a gatherer of useful items, like my whole life. <laughs> like, I've got a lot of things I should probably throw away even now. Um, and back then, I, had, I would get an allowance of a couple bucks a, a week, and, um, and I would save it up. And then when things like flea markets would come around, then I would, I would go to the flea market and buy some cool stuff, you know. And my brother and I were allowed to walk over to the flea market by ourselves, even though he was only like 11, I was 7. Um, and we walked over to the flea market, and there was a guy at the flea market. And Autumn, I think you'll, you'll definitely sympathize with this story, this part of it anyway. There was a guy at the flea market who was, was selling very inexpensively, like for two bucks or something like that, um, beautiful lab puppies. And these, it was, they had, he had like four of them. They were completely black from the tip of their nose to their tail. Their paw, there was not a bit of white or any color on them. They were perfect, beautiful black lab puppies. And it was like, he was like two bucks. And my brother and I stopped by. Of course, we love puppies. Everybody loves puppies, right? I mean, I mostly like them when they're somebody else's puppy. But at the time, I, you know, I'm thinking, this is cool. And we're petting the puppy. And one of the puppies in particular took a liking to my brother. And they, all the puppies were playing in this big kind of cardboard box thing that he had. And he had some balls in the bottom. And they were playing around and stuff like that. And they had a, he was selling them for like just a couple bucks a piece, which I think was more just to get rid of them. But anyway... So my brother says to me, we should buy one of these puppies. And I said, there's no way. Mom has said, there's no way we can have a dog. That's not going to happen. And he said, don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And I said, no, I'm telling you right now. If I'm here and you buy them, I'm going to be in big trouble. And we, had, we stood there and we moved aside as other people were looking at the puppies. And the puppies were playing in a box. And the, person, and the person actually said a couple of things to my brother. We moved about 10 feet away. But he, he made a couple of comments to my brother about, Oh, look, the puppy still loves you. The puppy still wants you to come back and play with it and like that. And he was sort of like, about 10 feet away, sort of like just casting those comments at my brother, trying to get my brother to fight for being allowed to get the puppy, even though my brother was the older one of the two of us. And ultimately, uh, you'd think he probably could have made the decision, except I was more physical than he was, and I was only about two inches shorter than him, and I weighed about 20 pounds more than he did. And, and I beat him up a lot at that time because I was just a real jerk, and he was not strong enough to stop it. And so the guy knew that I was holding him back. And finally, my brother goes back over to the guy and he bought the puppy for like two bucks with money out of his pocket. And the guy, he said, well, how, he asked the guy, so how am I going to keep the puppy and keep it like enclosed? And the guy gave him a box and he gave him a ball and like a toy bone for it, everything like that. And so we took this puppy home and my parents, my mom was uh, busy and my dad was at work and and so my parents didn't know and we went into the back door and I was supposed to make sure my mom wasn't looking and, and he took the puppy and he put the puppy in his closet with the box and the whole and I said that's not going to work puppies can't live in closets that's not going to work and he's like yeah yeah he said we, we just need to get by for a week or so and then once it's been here for a week or so eventually mom will find out about it and she won't make us get rid of the puppy and that was his argument I'm like I don't know finally he said to me he said here's the thing there's a chance we're going to get in trouble for getting the puppy. That's, that's a real thing. There's a chance we're going to get in trouble for this. But if we get in trouble, I'll take all the blame. He said, I'll take all the blame. I'll say, you, you resisted it. He said, you obviously argued with me about it. You didn't want to do it, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, and he said so you won't get in trouble. I'll take all the blame for the puppy. 
Well, puppies don't live in closets very well, and it was not even, it was the next day my mom discovered the puppy, and my brother did everything he could, he ought to be true to his word, to take all the blame, um, but it was one of the worst whoopings I ever got, and, and even though we didn't get rid of the dog at that time, the dog's name was Shadow, we named the dog Shadow, and even though we didn't get rid of the dog at that time, about six months later, once school had started back up, one day the dog just disappeared out of the fenced-in yard that we were, we were forced to make a fenced-in. My, my brother and I had to build a fenced-in yard. I was like seven years old. We had to build a fenced-in yard for it in the backyard. We had to pick up its poop every day. And then about six months later, we went to school one day, and we came home, and it had gotten away, and the puppy was gone. So I want you to bear that story in mind as we look at the text today. The second thing I want to just mention to you is that there's history involved here. There are six trials, essentially, of Jesus. Six. Three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. So Jesus was arrested. We read about that last week. And then there are three trials in which he is essentially tried in, you want to say Jewish court, but that really isn't true. Only one of them even gets close to that, um, the, which is the third one and after the sun comes up. And then there are three trials that take place that are essentially Roman trials. And just, I'm going to very simplify it. In all three Jewish trials, he's essentially found guilty. In all three Roman trials, he's essentially found innocent. So the Romans had the ability to put him to death. They could do that by law. In fact, the people that were getting crucified alongside the road, non-Golgotha and like that, they were all being crucified by the Roman government. They were thieves or or they were um, people who had been caught in a riot, or there were people who had rebelled against the Roman government in some way, or called other men to rebel, or been involved with sedition, and they were being crucified. So if he was going to be crucified as a means of death, he really needed to be found guilty in a court of law Roman, because they had the authority to do that. The Jewish law would call for people to be put to death if they were found worthy of death in a Jewish court, but they didn't technically have the authority to put anybody to death anymore. They would have to appeal to the Roman governor to enact the sentence. Okay? So today we're going to, and we're only going to see them briefly, except for the one we're going to look at more intensely, we're going to see all three of the Jewish trials and how they went, and then we're going to look at similarities between them. And they, they will go by quickly. I'm not going to break down everything that is in them because uh, in the interest of time, but I want you to see them. So the first one, which is not our text for today, but it's worthwhile looking at, is in John chapter 18. Somebody say, Amen, John chapter 18. Amen, John. Somebody online say, Amen. I heard you. I don't know. Actually, I didn't, but it's okay. I know somebody said, I'm, Nikki did it. That's, I believe. I can hear her voice in my head. Okay. So this is John 18, verse 12. John 18, verse 12, it begins. It goes through 24, 13 verses long, and it won't take us long at all. I'd say less than two minutes. So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That happened, began last week. And led him to Annas first, for he was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, who was a high priest, was high priest that year. So we've got two men. Just see the two names right now. We'll, we'll explain them later, Annas and Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So previously he had kind of prophesied. Uh, earlier in the Gospels, you heard him prophecy about Jesus being killed for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, the, the, that disciple, the other disciple, quote-unquote, the other disciple, was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, so into his courtyard of his home, not the court like as in a trial or anything like that. Okay, So into the court of the high priest, into his presence, if you will. So that other disciple had already gone in. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. 
Now, in the book of John, usually when you see that phrase, the other disciple, it's usually referring to John. We don't really technically know, but it was a, a tradition or a cultural thing in the day not to make a big deal out of yourself in your own writings. And so for him to say the other disciple, that very well could be that it was John who was known to the high priest Caiaphas and got him in the door, got Peter in the door. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And we understand that this is the beginning of the prophecy about Jesus. It's not really what our sermon's about today, but Peter, uh, Jesus had prophesied that he would deny Peter would deny Jesus three times. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now remember, this is at night, after dark. And so there is no, in Jewish law, there is no legal trial that takes place after dark. All of this happens, best historians can figure, between 2 a.m. and 10 a.m. So this is the middle of the night, and Jesus is, is being questioned by Caiaphas. Jesus answered him, I have spoken only to the world, openly to the world. I also, I'm sorry, let me start that again. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. It's all been right out in the open. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. This is actually a legal argument. Because also in Jewish law, it's not legal. It's against the law to force somebody to testify against themselves. So for the high priest, or Caiaphas, who's not technically the high priest at the time, but for him to question Jesus, to force Jesus to incriminate himself, is actually illegal. You can't do that. You can't convict somebody if you put them on the stand and get them to confess, that's not a conviction under Jewish law at this time. So Jesus makes a legal argument. He says, why are you questioning me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So if they can get two people to say that he blasphemed against God, then that would be a legitimate charge. But if Jesus agrees, yeah, I said that, that's in court, that's not technically a legitimate charge. Verse 22, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Technically, Caiaphas is not the high priest, and so Jesus was not technically being disrespectful, but I'll explain that in a second when we see the second section, okay? 23, Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. In other words, somebody, somebody testify, somebody make me out to be guilty in front of this court. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, I, if I'm innocent, you can't hit me like that, basically, because that would be against the law. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so I've been messing up my names a little bit, so now I'm going to clarify, all right? So this is taking place at the house of Annas. They're related, okay? And so uh, it's basically father-in-law and son-in-law. And one of them is, by the historian's best understanding, is considered to be the active high priest at the time, the other one had been named high priest, which was Annas. That's what they had been named high priest of the Jewish people. But the Romans were not recognizing him as high priest. They had put him down. So when you become high priest, technically you're high priest for life. It never ends until you, literally your heart stops beating. You never stop. But the Romans deposed the first guy in roughly 15 AD. So that's 15 years ago. But the Jewish people still recognize his authority. So that's why there's a debate as to which high priest is which. So now you need, if you're... Um, if you're Annas, 
and you really want to find him guilty, you really need him to be found guilty in a court that can be recognized by the Romans if you really want him to be put to, dead, to death. Okay? So now he's going to, Annas is going to send him over to Caiaphas, the high priest that the Romans recognized, and we're moving closer and closer to crucifixion at this point. Okay? The second historical uh, Jewish trial is our text for the day. Um, and it's in Matthew 26. And it begins in 57. Yay. Yay! Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. And th this verse literally starts right after the verse that we read, 56, last week. Okay? Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, was he the high priest or wasn't he? Again, historians had that debate, but he may have been the Jewish recognized high priest, I mean, the Roman recognized high priest, not the Jewish high priest. But anyway, he's led there, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So now we've got some people who actually could make a decision. It's at an illegal time, it's in the middle of the night, but they actually, these are the scribes and the elders, they can actually listen and be a kind of a jury, if you will, to 58. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So Peter is still tagging along. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. So they're bringing people in and getting people to testify. So this is getting closer to a legal trial, except that all the testimony is false. <laughs> so they're, they're trying to get two people to agree in false testimony to, to actually try Jesus and find him guilty so that they can do something about it. Verse 60, they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, Okay, so they get these people to come in and volunteer false testimony, but they can't get the testimony to line up so that the people who are listening as a jury will go, yeah, he's guilty, he deserves death. They can't get, because when they question him, because their testimony is false, there's little idiosyncrasies, there's little things that are wrong, there's not quite right. So they've not been able to get two testimonies so far, except, it says, but later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, you've read the Bible, and we've talked, we've read through the Bible, and we've studied this. Did Jesus say that? Does anybody know if he said it? He didn't say it. Yeah. Actually, what he said was, you destroy the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And the, the, the apostle puts in parentheses there, because what he was actually talking about was his body as the temple of God. And so he's saying, basically, if you destroy it, I'll raise it up in three days. That's a prophecy about his crucifixion. But notice they just changed one pronoun and made it Jesus saying, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The second half is totally correct. And to be, rebuild it in three days, he can do that. But the first half, they changed the you destroy the temple and I am able to build it in three days to I am able to destroy the temple. And two guys actually agreed that they heard him say that. So it's a complete falsehood. But they both agree. Now we've got testimony. We've got corroborating testimony. 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? So he says to Jesus, do you not answer? So he's not forcing him at this point to answer. So technically he's not forcing testimony. But because there is a false accusation against him, he's trying to get him to testify. And if he testifies, then he'll look guilty. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silence. He doesn't have to testify. He doesn't have to answer at all, so he keeps silent. And the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. So in the name of God, I say to you, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
So now he's asking him to either agree or deny that he is who he is. Right? So it's almost the same as if I, if I got up to court and say, you know, say, state your name for the court. And I stood there silent and I refused to state my name. And, the, and one of the, the judge or somebody asked me, says, is your name Daniel Stevenson? Now, I really have two choices. I can say yes or no. If I say nothing, then I'm basically in dereliction of my duty as far as the court's concerned. I can refuse to testify, but I can't not say who I am, right? But technically, that's not his name. So maybe he could still, he's not required by law, that kind of thing. But he says, I adjure you. To adjure someone is to compel them. I'm forcing you now by the power of the living God. And so if this guy is the Jewish recognized high priest, then he has the authority as a Jew, because Jesus is a Jew to force Jesus to speak. And he says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus says to him, you have said it yourself. So he doesn't say, I, I'm saying it's true yet, but he does say, you said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so, even though he doesn't technically say, yes, it's true, he says, you said it, and I'm not contradicting you. Okay? And he says, and I tell you, you will see it plainly. All evidences will be shown of the power of the Son of Man. Now, that's a reference to Jewish literature, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. And it is a text, the Son of Man coming on, uh, the, sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a text that they always, all Jews, have always associated with the Messiah, the Anointed One, coming. So when he quotes that verse about himself, any educated Jew, and that's everybody that's in the room, realizes that essentially he's saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was prophesied to come all the, way book in the, all the way back in Daniel. So much so that in verse 65 it says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. So he pronounces a verdict, which isn't really his job to do, but he pronounces the verdict. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. In other words, now all of you could testify against him. You all heard him say that he's God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah and the Anointed One, both of those things. You've now heard that. So now all of you could testify. We don't have to have any strangers come in, right? So basically he's saying, we're going to dismiss the entire legal process. And we're just going to find him guilty because he said something here that basically says, that's basically blasphemy. So he says in verse 66, what do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, prophecy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And so basically they begin to beat him and play games with him and mock him even now and here. Now technically, he has in no way legally been found guilty. He is not worthy of death. No judgment has been made. There's one more trial that must occur in order for that to happen. It's the third trial. We'll get there in a second. It's, it's a short text that tells us basically how they tried to legitimize what they were doing. These two trials happened in the middle of the night. Illegal, legally, it could not happen. It, it was 
people's rights were protected not to have nighttime trials because then you can close out who can testify. You can only have the people testify that you want. You've got to go wake them up and say, hey, come testify. And so that's not legal. So he's not been found guilty. And they are treating him as if he is guilty, even so, and beating him. And they'll call him out for another trial once the sun comes up, the third Jewish trial. All right. So first thing I want to tell you is I'm going to preach this sermon in kind of a challenging way. I need you to kind of really put your thinking cap on as I do it because I'm now going to teach from the pulpit of God, not that we ever should do this, I'm going to teach you how to find Jesus guilty. How do you do that? Now, in the world, it's happening all the time. Mostly they stumble on one point or another of what I'm about to talk about. They don't even necessarily do it intentionally, but there are those who are teaching false religion. They're antichrist. They may be led by a demon or a Holy Spirit, and they're intentionally finding Christ guilty. Okay? And if Christ is guilty, then he is not worthy to be Lord. If he is a sinner, if he is a blasphemer, if he is not God in the flesh, then he is not worthy to be Lord. So this is written this way, how to find Christ guilty. And there's essentially three major steps. The first one is, you have to make false claims line up. Now, I know that if you really believe he's guilty, then you, don't, you might not think they're false claims, but they are, and so you need your false claims to line up. The way they're accomplishing this are, number one, they're using false witnesses. They're bringing in people to testify about Jesus, that he said things or did things, in many cases, that he didn't do. Okay? And, in, and probably in every case, although we don't know what people actually testified in the earlier part of this. They might have, some of them might have testified to true things they saw him do that still would have been considered blasphemy, right? but they, the testimonies didn't line up. So you use false witnesses. You find people who are going to support your position. They called many false witnesses, still happening today. Use unfair practices. So they had a nighttime trial, which was completely illegal, and they tried to compel him to testify against himself. That's illegal. And there are a lot of other unfair practices that can be used. People use... Um, bullying, people use bad language, people use uh, anger, right? Or they'll, tell, they'll call you names like stupid, you're ignorant to believe, things like that. So there are unfair practices that are not fair in a legitimate argument. And if you really want to find Jesus guilty, that's the step you got to take. Or can take, anyway. You might not need all of these, but you definitely could use that one. Use human authority. Bottom line is God has bestowed us with certain authority. We have governors, we have kings, we have presidents, we have pastors, we have Sunday school teachers, we have teachers in schools, we have principals. There are lots of versions of authority that are out there. And then all you have to do is find somebody who has authority that says based on their position what you want to say. Just go to watch a trial at some point in time where somebody's being accused of murder. There will be doctors who will testify on one side. Well, he surely did it because of this. And then there will be doctors who will testify on the other side. He surely didn't do it because of this. And so they're using human authority to try to prove their point. And it might be your dad, it might be your principal, it might be your teacher, or it might even be your pastor saying something that is wrong about God, and then you use that human authority. Say, because I know, I was there, I saw it, or I learned it, or I studied this in school, or whatever, and you use human authority to speak against Christ. And then lastly, while trying to make false claims lined up, and maybe this is the most effective one, I think it's the one that the enemy uses the most often, maybe even, and that is to twist the truth. The smallest possible change. Make the smallest possible change you can so that it slips under the radar of the person who is the jury, if you will, and they decide that Jesus is actually guilty. They, they pronounce a verdict against him because of one small thing. All they changed was 
I can tear down the temple from you tear down the temple. One pronoun. Three letters. That's all it took to turn something that Jesus said from something that was completely legitimate. Anybody could say that. Now, they might make, be making a false claim about being able to rebuild it again, but anybody can say, if you tear down the temple, that's blaspheme in no way at all. Right? You're saying, if somebody else does it, that's nothing. It's not even a statement. It's an if statement. But he says, I will build it up again. And they don't misquote that part. They only misquote the first part. Because they love the temple. Remember what we talked about earlier? In their green tree day, they had built these beautiful buildings and everything was so amazing. And they were living the, the wildlife. Even though they were under Roman rule, they were on top of the hill. And the temple was on top of the hill. And everybody in the city was to look up to the temple and how awesome it was. And if you say you're going to tear that down, we got a real problem with you. And so all they had to do was change that you to an I. Just change the truth the littlest bit. And I'm here to tell you today that if you change the truth the littlest bit, if you color it with attitude, you can say the exact same thing, but color it with attitude and it becomes a lie. If I say to RJ, RJ, I love you like a brother. That's a significant statement. But if somebody else goes to, some, to somebody else and repeats what I said, Brother Ron goes to Autumn and said, you know, RJ was acting up, acting silly or whatever, and Dan came over and said, I love you like a brother. Just changing the tone. You don't have to change the letters. Just change the tone. Then it sounds like I'm correcting him for what he did wrong, and now that's testimony about my heart that I would use words like I love you in, in discipline and it's testimony about RJ when well, he was doing something so bad that I had to say it that way. And now you've colored the situation. You took the truth and made it a lie, even though you use the same words. You say, I, I went to serve my brother. I had to go serve my brother. Changes everything, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No man can come to the Father except by me. A little change changes everything. And it makes a truth out to be a lie. And that's a good tactic when trying to find Jesus guilty. The second major step that they go through in this trial, we see clearly here, they speak during the silence. Speak when the legitimate witnesses are not speaking. They hold the trial at night for fear that the people, the common people who held Jesus out to be a prophet, who recognized that his teachings were real, his powers were real, would say, well, we know, like Nicodemus even said, we know that you are from God because of all the miracles that you do. They knew that there were tons of legitimate witnesses that would not have found Jesus guilty, that might even have rioted if they had done so. And so they held the trials such as they were at night. You do this by, one, capitalizing on the absence of other voices. So you wait for a moment of time when no one's saying anything good about Jesus and say something bad about Jesus. You can even say something that sounds half good about Jesus, like, well, I would follow Jesus if the church weren't so hypocritical. right? And the voice comes out when no other voice is speaking, and it doesn't just disappear. People hear it. It's an argument from silence. No, no, I said that, and no one spoke up. There was no one there to testify anything good about Jesus. They did all their testifying when all other voices were silent. You build an audience with limited participation. Pick the right people, right? So you only let the right people be around when you're smashing Jesus. So we'll get a conversation going where it's me and I'm smashing Jesus and then here's my other friend and I want them to agree with me. 
I'm not going to take them to dinner with Christian people who believe about God. I'm taking them to dinner with atheists. Let's me and you and Sam, who's an atheist, go to dinner. We're going to talk bad about Jesus. And by the time we're done, Jesus is barely able to speak for himself because there's nobody there who loves him, cares about him, or has him in him. Right? So we, we quell the conviction of the Holy Spirit by building an audience with limited participation, picking just the right people to speak against Jesus instead of for him. Surround yourself with those kinds of people and you'll be capable of doing just about anything. Count on people to preserve themselves. Remember this from last week? Jesus said, well, tear down, you, if I tear down the temple, they made it a lie. It was a lie. He didn't say that. But when they heard him say, if I tear down the temple, the Jewish people were going, you tear down the temple? You take my temple? Right? How's that going to happen? No, I'm not going to let that happen. And they get their craw up, they get their pride up, they get their arrogance up, and people will respond and do foolishly out of those emotions which are basically stemming from self-preservation or survival instinct. Not only that, but there's the possibility of a riot. If we riot, the, Jew, the Roman army comes in, kills everybody. We don't want that. There's a possibility of the common folk misbelieving this guy. And then we could lose our position. The Sadducees are thinking, well, we're in good with the Roman government right now. And if he stirs up things too much, then we could have problems with the Roman government. We've been doing just fine. We're getting all these taxes, living in big houses. Everything is great. So we're going to pass a verdict that will get rid of this guy before too much trouble arises. So the first one was make false claims line up. The second one was speak during the silence. And the third one is drill down, and this is how they really get it done in the end, drill down on one thing that's true. Take one truth, one actual truth, that even Jesus would not deny, that a Christian would not deny. Take that one truth and then drill down on it to find parts of it that people really don't like. This truth must be irritating or restated as irritating. For example... People have to pay to go to church. That's re the truth is, we do tithe. We do pass the offering plate. We do ask people to give online. We do ask people for, to give of their money. But the truth is, the tithe isn't even giving. It belongs to God. So literally, God says, you keep it, you stole it. Right? Then after that, we ask people to give above beyond. We ask people to give sacrificially. So you don't even have to say it that people pay to go to church. Is it true that the church asks people to give sacrificially of their money, their time, their talents, their life? Is it true that the church asks people to even die if necessary for what they believe? Yes, it's true. That is a truth. And so if you drill down on that truth when talking with somebody who would convict Jesus or might, they're on the verge of doing so, then they're going to be irritated by that. You go to them and you say, I'll give you an example. When I was in the youth group at East Toledo, there was a man who graduated from the youth group and went to college. And he moved into a college dorm. He was there just a few days, and he was going around witnessing to people. Now, his idea of witnessing people was he found some people who were drinking. He told them, you, sh you shouldn't drink. God doesn't want you to do that. And he found some people that were lying, and he said, you shouldn't lie. God wouldn't want you to do that. You shouldn't skip class. God wouldn't want you to do that. That was his idea of witnessing. And they all hated him for it. That's not nice. That's not even a good way to live, walk around telling people what they're doing wrong. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came not to condemn Right? So we don't walk around condemning people, telling people that they are at odds with God because they're doing what's wrong. Even though that's true, that's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is you don't have to be at odds with people. So if you take the truth and either it is already irritating, like the church asks people to, to serve, even sacrifice, even unto death, or be martyred for their faith if necessary, that's already irritating. Or if it can be restated as irritating, like God doesn't want you to do that, then either way... 
you've managed to drill down on a truth that's actually true in a way that offends. The second thing that they're doing in here to make this drilling down on one thing that's true work is they capitalize on the endurance of the statement. So the actual thing will not go away. You can try to make Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, go away, but it ain't going away. You can try to make the fact that your Jewish faith or religion that you're following about God, that it's not going to get you to heaven. You can try to make that go away, but it isn't going away. And when you capitalize on it, then people feel desperation. They get angry, irritable, they start taking things in their own power, they, or they withdraw, become depressed, desperate, whatever, because there's something that's just not going away. There's something they can't do anything about. There it is. Craft an argument for desperation. We need to do something. We need to run out and fix it. We need to run out and conquer it. We need to run out and shut them up. We need to, we need to beat them up. right? Whatever. You craft an argument out of desperation because the thing is not going away. Unleash human reason then to devise a plan and twist the truth. So we all agree this is wrong. It's not going away and it's all wrong. So let's figure out a way to make it into blasphemy so that we can find him guilty. Should Jesus ask people to live their lives, to sacrifice their lives and even die if necessary? Should he do that? That's not nice. That's mean. Well, I, I see here it says God loves people. A God that loves people would never ask them to sacrifice their life for him. Right? Wrong. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow after me. The cross is crucifixion, it's suffering even unto death. He exactly asks people to do that. But if God is love, he would never ask people to do that. So now I can easily argue, someone can easily argue, that by human reason, God would never do that. Just twist the truth a little bit. You could say, for example, God wants us all to die for him. Is that true? It is true. It actually is true. Not physically, like our hearts not beating necessarily die, but to sacrifice the old man, right? To, to deny yourself, that means to put yourself to death and to favor Jesus, right? So to become, but it, it comes with new life, so we don't just die, suddenly we accept Jesus and you die, your heart stops beating, you go to, go to heaven, right? You, it comes with new life, you become a new creation. But the old self has to die. That's true. When you say it that way, it sounds like something you've got to fight, doesn't it? Let's get, let's get mad. Jesus wants us to die? How dare you say that? I love Jesus. He would never do that. I'm going to defend Jesus. And now in defending Jesus, I've been driven to action because human reason devised a plan to twist the truth. I can't answer to it. And so now, basically, forgive me saying it this way, I'm screwed. And then lastly, and there's four on this, when you, when you drill down on one thing that's true, picking it apart to find ammunition, the last thing is you teach a universal truth that cannot be denied even by the actual truth. And they killed him. Let's not kid ourselves in any way, shape, or form. They killed him because he claimed to be God in the flesh, the anointed one of God. That's why they killed him. In the end, that's why they found him guilty in the second trial was because he claimed to be God in the flesh. That's what the high priest even said. You've heard it with your own ears. I'm paraphrasing. You've heard it with your own ears. He claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. And they said, he deserves death. But it was true. It's a truth that could not be denied and now... It was deemed as blasphemy. He was found guilty, and they would kill him for it. Okay, but they couldn't kill him, could they? Because all of this has happened in the middle of the night without access to other witnesses. It's not a legal trial. They couldn't actually bring him to death. So come daylight, right about the time of daylight, they're going to have one more trial before everybody's up. 
before everybody's ready, before the riot could possibly happen, before people come and testify, but the sun is up, so it's technically legal. And it's in Luke 22, 66 to 71. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both of chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. So not out in the public, but in the council chamber, which is semi-legitimate, the priests and scribes, so there's the people that are going to make the decision. This is Luke 22, 66, now into 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. So what, what are they using? They're going to compel him to testify against himself, thereby making this an illegitimate trial, but at least they're doing it during the daytime so they can go to the Romans and say, yeah, he's found guilty. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. That's what happened in the other trial, right? He said he was God in the flesh. They didn't believe him. They said blasphemy, and they were going to put him to death. Now we're having a, a semi-legitimate trial in the daylight, still illegitimate because there's no actual witnesses against him. They're not doing it the right way. They're not opening it up to other people to come and testify on his behalf, whatever. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. In other words, if he asked a question to get them to fill in the gap so they could start to figure it out or to make them think, to, to allow other witnesses to come in and answer his question, it's not going to be legitimate anyway. They will not answer. 69 says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There is that reference to Daniel. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? Now they've asked him point blank, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? In other words, we're going, to dis we're going to get rid of all of our regular laws, etc. Here he is admitting that he says he's God in the flesh, son of God. For we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. And now they're ready to kill him. And the stage is set for the crucifixion. That brings us to our conclusion, but it's, it's thick, so be ready. So first thing is, you can do this too if you want to. I just gave it to you in the format of how you do it. The bottom line is that uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is re re revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And this is a passage of scripture that tells us that those who do not recognize who God is and that he sent his son, what he's up to, that they're without excuse. But it also says something, doesn't it? That there's a lot of people that though they have all the testimony of God, that it's all there, there's a lot of people who are finding him guilty, who are kicking him out, who are not calling him Lord. And if they can do it, we could do it. You can do this if you want to. The fact is, you might even slip into doing it if you're not careful about not using these tactics yourself. You can do it if you want to. This is exactly the opposite these tactics are exactly the opposite of what we are called to and they are thwarted by being a follower of Christ. We will not do these things. We will not make false claims line up. We will not speak during the silence against Christ, but if we do speak during the silence, it'll be for Christ. We will not drill down on one thing that's true and pick it apart to find ammunition. That's not how Jesus works. That's not how Jesus' people work, which means you cannot use these tactics to thwart these tactics. 
So when you get online and somebody's picking apart the truth and coming up with something small that they're hammering down on, and you come back and you hammer down on that one thing, but you try to do it for Christ, you're falling in the trap. You're doing the same thing that they're doing. You can't do that. You cannot parse words. You cannot get down to the nitty-gritty. You cannot use semantics. The whole truth is the whole truth. And the truth is, if you ever try to make the truth more gentle and less convictable, you're going to lose. Because what are you doing? Well, you're taking, making it that one little change that makes it no longer the truth. And only the truth will stand forever. You could do this. You could find Jesus guilty. Secondly, a predetermined verdict, as we see in here, is actually a verdict about the judge, not about the judged. When, and I hope this is long past in our nation, but when judges sat the bench and looked at an African-American defendant and found them guilty with not enough evidence to actually prove that they were guilty, but they were actually finding them guilty because they were African-American and they mistakenly believed that certain crimes were more likely to have been committed or that he was more likely to be guilty than not because of the class of people that he came from, that said that that judge was not a good judge that he was full of hate and prejudice and bias, and it was wrong. And we understand that fundamentally. If you make the decision before you get the evidence, that doesn't say anything about the decision. It doesn't say anything about the evidence. It doesn't say anything about the, the verdict of the person that's on trial. It says something about you. Prejudice and bias are wrong. You cannot go into a legitimate decision by being prejudiced. If the, if the verdict is predetermined, then what that actually says is something about the judge. I'm a bigot or a hypocrite if I make my decision based on any of these factors which people are normally prejudiced against them. You cannot do that. And it can be cultural. right? It can be people from the other side of the tracks. It can be people who come from a, a heritage like, um, a strong cultural heritage like Judaism or African culture or Irish culture or whatever. And we say, oh, they do some things. That, and we kind of laugh and we judge them. They do some things. When you say they do some things, what you're, you're making a, a judgment about what they're doing. You don't know if some of those things that they do aren't things that they do because God has them doing them. You can't say it's just because of culture. So being prejudiced, being biased, it actually makes a statement about the person. Jesus did not come to condemn but they were condemned already by what they did with the Son of God. See, these people who are in this trial, they were condemned already because they had already made a decision to crucify him. Not because he was bad or good, but because he was actually God in the flesh and they had already decided to crucify him rather than to follow him, rather than to listen to him, rather than to believe in him. So that makes a statement about them. And I'm going to say it this way. It means that they deserve to go to hell because they had decided in advance that they would crucify Jesus. They deserved to go to hell. And that's not that big of a thing, is it? I mean, it's a big thing to go to hell. But didn't we all deserve to go? Didn't we all make decisions that didn't honor God? Didn't we all sin? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But while we were in sin, we were still asking ourselves, making judgments, is it the right time to lie? Is it the right time to steal? It might have been just so we didn't get caught. We hadn't decided that in every possible opportunity we would steal or murder or respond with anger, right? We were just ignorant that there was another way. We deserved hell because of our sin, but we were ignorant that there was another way. If you instead made that predetermined verdict, I am going to 
ignore the teachings of Christ. I'm not going to be willing to hear, then actually that's a verdict about yourself. You're condemning yourself. Jesus didn't come to condemn. People condemn themselves. And then the last one is, if you were told or asked by Jesus, would you participate or have you already determined the outcome? If Jesus says, I want you to go tell this person about Jesus, as he does in Matthew 28. If Jesus says, I want you to be my witness, as is written in Acts 1.8. And that's our Jesus' words as well, you shall be my witnesses. If Jesus says, come follow me, take up my cross, deny yourself daily. When Jesus makes a statement like that, will you participate? Will you listen to what he's saying and follow? When he asks you a question, and he's gentle about it, he says, will you, will you come follow me? Will you be forgiven of your sins? Will you live for me today? When he asks that question, will you participate, or have you already really determined the outcome? That if I go that way, if I follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. If I do what Jesus really wants me to do, it's going to be hard. If I talk to this person about Jesus, they're probably just going to get mad at me. If I ask them tough questions, they're going to be like, why are you bothering me with all this stuff? And I don't want to offend, so I've already predetermined the outcome. We have missed more opportunities to serve Jesus because we were just like the Jewish people who would not listen when he spoke or, or respond when he asked. We've missed more opportunities. There's no time left for that. We've got to respond when he asks. We, we need to look at Scripture as point blank. This is what it says we're supposed to do, and we're supposed to do it. And when Jesus asks us to do something, our answer should be a, a fundamentally resounding, yes, I'll do whatever you ask of me, Jesus. Not have a predetermined, well, I don't know if I can go there or not. It's going to be too hard. I might, might mess up my relationship or I might lose something or I might run out of money. See, we're just like them in our flesh. You can do it if you want to. You can find him guilty and find all kinds of reasons not to do what he's told you to do. And if you find him guilty and you find that he's not deserving to be Lord of your life, then you won't find yourself taking nearly as many risks. You won't find yourself stepping out as much. You won't find yourself being that voice for him. Let me submit to you that there is an alternative. We are to listen to Jesus. We are to win the lost. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, deny ourselves daily, take up our cross and follow him. But we should be aware that the world still works in these same ways to get you to find him guilty to basically make him ignorable. Don't fall in this trap. Instead, do the work of knowing him and following his lead every day. In other words, listen to me. I'm going to be clear about this. We need our Bibles because when our Bibles are not speaking to us, there's silence. Now, it's not the Holy Spirit doesn't still convict of sin. That's still going to be there if the Holy Spirit is in you and you're listening to the Holy Spirit. You can still hear there is still a witness that witnesses about Jesus, about his lordship. But when you let the Bible fall silent and you're not praying and you're not serving out of self-sacrifice and you're not giving, you're not using the spiritual disciplines, you're not <coughs> worshiping in him, where are the voices? And the enemy will step up and he will speak and he will give you everything you need to find Jesus guilty that he would not be Lord of your life. Rather, you should be working hard every day. Be found diligent. Following his lead. And then you will not fall into the trap. You will not rely on these same tactics and you will not fail to follow Jesus. Secondly, recognize the tactics when the enemy tries to use them to relegate Jesus to, a, Jesus to a position of less than Lord of your life. 
defeat the enemy in that moment by instead drawing close to God. Somebody comes, they have a really viable argument why you should do something wrong, they're talking you into it. Or maybe it's kind of seductive, you're getting the opportunity. You're like, well, keep getting the opportunity, it keeps popping up, you have the opportunity. Recognize that as an attempt to speak when voices are quiet, as an attempt to find you when you will listen. Recognize it when it says, well, you have to, when you need to. Come on, you've got to. If you've got to, you're not actually free. And if you're not actually free, then you're not following Jesus. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, come follow me and then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Be free. But practice the spiritual disciplines while you're free so that when these efforts are used, you will recognize them for what they are and when the enemy tries to use them, you'll say no and draw close to Jesus. Third, recognize these tactics when the enemy uses them against you and that this is the time to shake off the dust of your boots and move on. You're going to try to share Christ with somebody or you're going to be pushed with uh, somebody who has really strong opinions like they're an atheist and they really know for sure that there is no God. And you can try to share the gospel with them, but you'd be wasting your breath. When you recognize that that's the way it is, they're just trying to find any way, some combination, some way to get into you, some way to get at you, that's when you just stop fighting them. Just stop talking back to them. Just stop engaging them in conversation and say, no, it's okay. You believe what you want to believe. I'm going to believe what I want to believe, and that should be okay. It won't be because they're adversarial, and they have to convince you, or they're going to want to convince you, or whatever. They're going to continue with seductive tactics, etc. at times. And the truth is, we shouldn't really be okay with them believing what they want to believe either. But God has given us free will. And when they insist upon believing something that would take them to hell or take them out of his presence or take them out of him out of their life, then you have to let that be so. Because otherwise you're going to get wrapped up in trying to use all these tactics that they're trying to use. And that's not how Jesus, fight, Jesus fights. So shake off your boots then and move on. Do not cast your pearls before swine. That's what that means. If there is a chance that someone will listen, then you should be speaking. But once there is no chance that they will listen, you should not be speaking. You don't need to browbeat them. You don't need to talk them into anything. You should be done at that point. And you should be elsewhere looking for those who might listen. He is Lord. He is truth. He won't live in your closet. And he won't be dismissed. And you can't take it on yourself because he already took it on himself. Say today, I am his regardless of the efforts of those who would try to lead me to do otherwise. And as the song says, say, though none go with me, I still will follow. I get it. He came to bring peace on the earth, peace between God and man, peace between men and men who will recognize who God is. And yet he also came to bring a sword. And it's going to get tough. We're worried about how bad it could get under the effects of the coronavirus. Some people are. There is a much deeper, greater problem in the world. Not that it isn't terrible. It's terrible. People are dying. It's terrible. People's fam people are suffering the loss of their loved ones. None of us like to go through that. It's terrible. It is a feeling of death. It's the sting of death. But it is not death for us. And so as people suffer, we try to mitigate that suffering. But more importantly, we have to deal with the deeper issue, which there's a lot of people out there who have essentially found Jesus guilty 
because there's a lot of people in here and in the church and across the world that are the church who are not speaking up. Don't let the enemy make false claims line up. Don't let the enemy speak during the silence. Don't let the enemy drill down on one thing that's true and pick it apart to find ammunition. Let us be the body of Christ and love. And if there ever was a darker hour politically, economically, etc., we're at the point where soon there may never have been a darker hour. But the light of Jesus is still shining. And people who know Jesus, if they die, will still go to heaven. And we need to speak up before it's too late. Before the losses are too deep. Let me pray for you briefly. And then uh, we are going to, not again today, not have a call forward invitation, but an opportunity to raise hands in closing prayer. And I would encourage those, if you're watching this online, if you're making some kind of a decision today, a decision to not engage in these tactics or to not allow the enemy to use these tactics against you, if you're deciding again today to follow Christ, to serve, then if you're watching online, you're going to PM New Heights or PM me or text me and let me know your decision. Don't let that pass. Be bold about it. Need it out in the open decision. And for us here who are in this room, if you know that you've been stuck there playing those games and you're deciding to stop today and say, no, I recognize that Jesus truly was the Son of God. I don't find him guilty as if he just claimed to be the Son of God. He actually is the Son of God. And you're intending to follow him with all that you are. And as Mike said, to never quit. If that's your intention, you're making that decision today, then we'll, after we pray, we'll have an opportunity to make that decision public. And, uh, and I think we'll sing the closing hymn today, but just not respond. Okay? So we'll, we will do that. Right. Well, let's pray together. God in heaven, here we are. The truth is, we're not facing it like some are facing it. Even though pretty much everybody in this room is engaged in what would be called an essential business, and so we still all have to go to work. We all have to serve. And the church's business is essential too. We're not facing it like some folks are facing it. They lost their husband yesterday, lost their daughter, lost their grandparent. Some folks are really, really, really facing it. The reality of death is right in front of them, even on them. And now, they really don't get the time to mourn the way somebody might have mourned the loss of a loved one two years ago or ten years ago because virus is still at large. People are still suffering and people are still trying to survive. It's just not the time to mourn the way that we want to mourn. So Lord, we need your comfort more than ever. And I'm praying, Lord, that we would, we would be your people and a light, a light of love. We'd go to our neighbors, check on people. We haven't seen them in a few days. They haven't been out of their house. They're locked in. Just check on them in a way that doesn't infect, in a way that serves, in a way that loves. Because there's people that are desperate and alone. Or maybe they feel like they're living in a closet. They thought they were going to get a new home, free, safe. Thought everything was going to be great. This is the United States of America, a land of plenty. And now, not just here, but everywhere in the world. What we've all fought for, what we've all put together, the liberties of our nation, the freedom to do the things that we really think are right, and for some folks to do the things that they 
think they think that they think they can get away with it. Um, Lord, that's all being challenged right now. It's all in flux. But really it's all in your hands. And so we're asking you to intervene in our nation. We're asking you to intervene in our, in our lives. Lord, help us to find Jesus worthy of being Lord of every moment of every day. Help us not to engage in the tactics that the enemy uses to try to disqualify Jesus as if we might somehow fight fire with fire. But rather to just boldly say, I love you. The next time someone is really arguing with us, really upset, they're messaging us cuss words or something because we're doing something in Christ that they don't like, Lord, just let us say, let us say back to them, God loves you and I love you. I see that we disagree, but that doesn't stop me from loving you. And then when they continue to try to argue, they continue to try to throw up new statements to try to convince us to not follow Jesus. Lord, let us just keep loving them. And if necessary, let them go their own way to live as they see fit. Who knows, maybe in a year or 10 or 20, if they won't come to Christ, they won't come to you. Maybe you already know that they will leave this earth a firm believer in serving you. So we ought to love them like a brother or a sister, even though sometimes we may have to love them from a distance. God help us. We commit ourselves to you. Well, we're going to sing this last song today. And have an opportunity to just kind of raise our hands to say, I've made a decision today. I'm living for Jesus. Or the text or the, the PM in. I'm living for Jesus today. I'm asking you to move in your Holy Spirit power in this room and amongst everybody who's looking to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This song will be our closing hymn. As the song ends, we'll be prepared to leave the room. Oops. get to the second verse, I'll give you the opportunity to just respond by raising your hand right where you are if you're deciding today to be changed. We believe that we have life in the name. 
Is that your prayer? Come on now. We believe though we can never see. We believe and choose to follow our King, Jesus. We twofold okay the first thing is i keep talking to you about uh, sharing christ with people in this late day this late time when people are potentially dying from this virus and whatever people are desperate people are staying home and all that kind of thing and uh, so real quick and it's going to be very simple very brief i want to tell you this is how you do it you're going to get in some kind of a conversation with somebody and you say uh, maybe you're talking about football, you're talking about whatever, but the person's obviously open to that conversation. You say, do you have any spiritual beliefs? This is if you don't know that they claim to be a Christian. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? And they say, sure. Or they say, no, or whatever. And then you listen to what they have to say, and then you say, well, can I tell you, have you ever looked at what the Bible says about that, or can I tell you what the Bible says about that? And then they say, sure, hopefully. If they say, no, you stop. If they say, sure, then you share. And what, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means everybody has sinned. Everybody's done wrong. Me too. Everybody. No exceptions. And then the wages of that sin, and of course I'm quoting Romans 3.23 and 6.23, you can look them up later. The wages of that sin is death. It means you're separated from God. Now and forever. That's what death means. Separated from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ his Son. So, and you can quote John 3.16. Most people can do that from memory. If you can't, I encourage you to, to memorize it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever... Believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So in other words, the wages of sin is death. But if you believe in Jesus, you can be saved, and you will not die, and you will not go to hell. You'll die in a sense of your heart will stop beating, but you will not be separated from God. And then you ask them, are you willing to believe that? Now, if they already believed it, they'll tell you they already believed it, if they haven't said so. Oh, yeah, I already believed that. And then you say, well, has there been a moment in time in which you truly just said, God, okay, take me, make me new, live with me for the rest of my life. That's called being born again. You can talk about Nicodemus and how Nicodemus was told by Jesus, even though he was a very holy man, that he had to be born again. And you ask them if they've done that. If they say no, then you say, would you be willing to do that right now? And if they say yes, then you bow your head and you lead them in a very simple prayer that it basically says, Lord, take the rest of my life, use me as you see fit. I confess I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven. However you want to word it. There's no rocket science in it. Okay? If they pray, then afterwards you say, did you pray? They say, yeah. So have uh, you accepted Jesus Christ? Into your heart? Yes, I have. 
Simple as that. You can embellish it as you want. Okay? That's the gospel presentation. Here's where it gets hard. And this is what we need to talk about right now. What are you going to say when someone asks you, if there is a God, why is there a COVID-19 disease? What's the answer to that question? Someone may have an answer. Anyone want to take a stab at it? We need that answer, don't we? That's a question that's on people's hearts right now that they're teetering on the edge. Okay? Since the fall, since the sin in the Garden of Eden, the condition of creation has always been fallen. If you need to, grab Google and Google the tragedies that have taken place in every single year. Now the COVID is looking like it's going to be the worst ever, admittedly. We're, we're approaching Black Plague scale, but it's happened before. The tornadoes are a thousand times more common now than they were just 20 years ago. Okay? They've been going up since 1970 or something like that. They've been going up every year, more tornadoes. Earthquakes, floods. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, creation, and you could say it this way, creation has always been out to get man. Always. <laughs> because it's been fallen. He was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He would work amongst the, to, to raise crops. But the land would always rise up thorns, right? And he's always going to have to fight against creation. He's at odds with creation. All right? Always been that way. COVID is just another example of creation groaning for redemption. It wants to be saved like we can be saved, but it can't be. That won't happen again until Jesus comes again. Okay? So that's your answer. That's my answer. Somebody asked me, why the COVID? If God, well, God is love. So well, then why doesn't God just crush it? Okay? Well, God essentially did that on the cross. If you die of the COVID, you go straight to heaven. Right? That's salvation. And so that's, what, that's why God died, to pay for sins. But man can be saved and then exist still in creation. My spirit, my soul is on the way to heaven, but my body is not going. Right? I'll get a new resurrected body in the new heaven and the new earth. So we can go to heaven, though we die. Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall never perish. And he meant we'll never be separated from God. Right? So God does provide a, a ticket out, if you will. But creation is not going to be fixed. From the moment of the fall, it was never going to be fixed. It's only actually ever going to get worse. Read the book of Revelation. It's only ever going to get worse. So the answer to why does it remain now is you probably realistically can say this isn't even the worst one that's ever going to come. Because according to Revelation, after the church is called out, there's going to be a disease that wipes out one-third of the entire earth's population. A third of everybody that's left on the earth will die in one disease. That's going to be way worse than COVID. Unless, of course, COVID mutates a few times and can come back around and get people again. But we don't know that that's the case. So the point is, it's creation's groanings waiting for redemption. In fact, what does that make it? All the more testimony that people need Jesus. Time is short. Share Jesus with everyone who will listen. Because you don't know, same as we didn't know six months ago about a car accident or a shooting or cancer, right? There's all these things that's always been happening. Earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, it's always been like that. We didn't know then. Now it just puts it really in our forefront, in our mind. You don't know, but that somebody you love might not get COVID and die three weeks from now. We don't know that that might not happen. And if, it was, if it's your neighbor, it's supposed to be somebody you love, right? So if your neighbor gets it and you never told him about Jesus, shame on you. What does that say about you? Because you said, well, I don't think they will believe. Well, that's not up to you. 
That's up to God. And the same way with me. So I re it really struck me hard this last week. After this experience of the virus, I don't know that I can live anymore with continue living on this earth without that intentional choice to try to literally share the gospel in some simple form with everybody. I can't just say God bless you anymore. I'm going to, if it's just a snippet, you know, believe in Jesus and be saved. If it's just, that's all I can get in. We've got to get that out there. And I'm not saying belittle it or make it stupid, but what I am saying is we've got to get it out there. It is the cure for the disease that will end mankind on the earth, which is sin and death. All right? So, so that's my answer. You may have a better answer, but if you don't, then use that one. Okay? And let's go share the gospel with anybody and everybody that will listen while there is still light to work. Okay? Brother Tony Brister, would you, I know I said we were going to be done, but would you kindly close us in prayer that we will be those lights that we are supposed to be as we go out? So far, Lord, would you uh, thank you for bringing us together and thank you for those that may be tuning in, uh, those that are fearful, and let's just be careful in this time, but I'm not afraid, but I just, uh, uh, we ask your protection, your blessing, and as uh, we go from here, should be the light for those who are looking at this in a dark way. Lord, just let your light shine through us, to them. Again, Lord, we just pray for your protection. Those of, most of us are, who are working are out in it. Um, I'm so thankful, Lord, that uh, it's not nothing greedy, but I was just thinking of where I'm at working, out of town even, that I see the beauty of spring blossoming all around me, and then there's a disease or a virus that's, that's hampering the world. So it's, it's kind of ironic to me. But thank you for uh, blessing me with that, and uh, yes. just ask you, Lord, to uh, continue to work through us, get us through this, and uh, Lord, just uh, be patient and help us to do the same. Alrighty then, there it was. That was the service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. Uh, our members coming together, those who can and feel um, that God would have them do so, to worship on March 29, 2020. Um, you heard us talk a little bit about the COVID virus. You heard us talk a lot about Jesus and the three Jewish trials. And uh, we've learned a lot as far as the tactics of the enemy to try to convict Jesus in people's minds and in people's lives and keep them from following him. We hope that you won't fail fall prey to any of those tactics, but rather that you'll reach new heights in Jesus today and every day. We also hope that you won't engage in any of those tactics, either for or against Jesus. That's just not the way that people are meant to, to live and to work. And so please love your neighbor. Check on people during this time. Obviously, honor the stay-at-home order the best you can, um, but uh, we cannot abandon as communities needing to take care of one another and so on. So if there's an elderly person in your neighborhood, make sure they're okay. Make sure people have food. Make sure people are hearing the gospel from you the best you can in light of the restrictions that are on us. Uh, support local businesses. Pray for government. Pray for the church. Uh, pray for the gospel to reach those who are lost and dying without Christ. Check us out online at churchtoledo.com if you want. Listen to other podcasts on uh, podcast garden forward slash podcast forward slash nhf if you want to give you can text give to 419-419-0095 if you want to partner in some other way uh, prayer service volunteer send supplies 
uh, help with shopping, anything like that, you can text PARTNER, P-A-R-T-N-E-R, to 419-419-0095. If you're in the Toledo area and you need updates, you can text INFO for New Heights updates or LS for Life Station updates. So we are actively serving in Toledo and helping people as much as we possibly can get through what is a very difficult time. It is not an unheard of time. There is nothing new under the sun, but a very difficult time. And God is with us still, and we pray that he will be with you and with all Americans during this time. Reach new heights in Jesus.